All over the world, cities are taking shape in unique ways. Technology and population trends are impacting how cities develop and the ways in which they impact culture. The question is, how does the church respond? In particular, how are cities in Asia growing and how is the church responding? I'm Michael Crane, and this is Mission City, a podcast about the urban revolution and how the church can serve the city. I'm a researcher and writer on the intersection of cities and the Christian faith. Our guest today is Dr. John Cheong, the Associate Professor of World Religion and Intercultural Studies at Grand Canyon University. He formerly served or taught as a senior lecturer and consultant in missiology and intercultural studies in five different countries in Asia for over a decade. He has written many articles in the areas of religion, contextual theology, globalization, diaspora missiology, and urban mission, and co-edited or published six books. He has a forthcoming book titled, Emplacing Globalization. Mission in Contexts of People, Processes, and Places. And this will be published by Regnum Press in 2023. Hi, John. Welcome to Mission City Podcast. We're so glad to have you as a guest today. Thank you, Michael. Glad to be here. (laughs) So let's just start off by hearing a little bit about who you are, how you came to know Jesus, and... Uh, tell us about your family as well. Well, I'm Malaysian, and uh, I suppose I would describe myself with uh, three M's, Malaysian, missiologist, and migrant. I grew up in Malaysia, born near the city of Kuala Lumpur, and I stayed there for most of, uh, well, all of my grown-up life until I turned 17, then After that, I followed my family to the U.S., and that's when I became a migrant. It was around that time that uh, Malaysia experienced an economic recession. My family migrated there for uh, better economic opportunities. Now, I was there for only uh, a few years because I loved Malaysia. I loved my friends. I missed my friends dearly, in fact. And I missed my church as well. There's some background story to to that as well. Uh, I I became a Christian when I was eight years old, reading Christian comics, (laughs) no less. Yeah, (laughs) that's another story that we could go into. But for the longest time, I never really went to church because uh, my mother wasn't a Christian. uh, None of my family members were Christian. And uh, so they were quite skeptical about Uh, coming into a religion or finding Jesus Christ through comics, and uh, I was only eight. (laughs) So uh, I really never really got the goal or the green light to go to church until I was 16. And so it was when I finally 
uh, was able to go to church at 16 years old, that uh, all those uh, pent-up desire for Christian fellowship, for community, learning under a pastor, for getting discipleship, all those things just really, I, I guess, came together in all those <laughs> eight years. Uh, I was, a, you could say, a solo Christian uh, just merely existing by reading books, uh, buying books at Christian bookstores and uh, whatever fellowship I could find in my uh, school Christian clubs. All that to say was that uh, in my short uh, year or two when I was in church, 16, 17 years old, I really felt that this was the community that I wanted to be. This was a place I wanted to serve God. And uh, that was where God really drew me more and more into loving Jesus and wanting to serve Him the rest of my life. So the fact that my family wanted to migrate to the U.S. after <laughs> I finished my schooling in uh, Malaysia at uh, 17 was uh, really a big uh, blow to me. And so I never really got over it. And... Um, I said to myself, okay, that's fine. Uh, uh, I'll be an obedient filial Asian and uh, I know I'll follow my family and uh, and that's what I did, you know. But uh, after four years of uh, studying, uh, my first degree was a chemistry degree. Uh, I packed up my bags and I flew back to Malaysia. <laughs> I tried to serve with my church again, but uh, things didn't quite work out. Uh, did a year of church planting with them in uh, Pataling Jaya, and uh, which is a suburb of uh, Kuala Lumpur, really. And uh, I was really disappointed. And I suppose that was God's plan because he led me back to the U.S. Uh, where I rejoined my family again. And, uh, you know, Michael, it essentially set me on a course to ask uh, tough questions. Uh, how do we hear from God? How do we know what missions is? Uh, what is missions in a city really? What makes it successful? What makes it fail? And uh, where does all of this fit in uh, to my life as a Malaysian? Uh, is it going to be in uh, the US for the rest of my life? Or is it going to be returning back to Malaysia someday to serve? And uh, so that led me on a long-term journey where about six years later, that was uh, the year 2000, that uh, finally the Lord opened the door for me to study in seminary. That's where that third M of my life comes in, a missiologist. Uh, and that was really by way of accident because I didn't, really have, in fact, I never even heard of that term until I went to seminary. <laughs> I thought, what's a missiologist? <laughs> um, I, I just wanted to study theology, systematic theology. And the reason was simple, because uh, when I was a young Christian, I never really felt I got that proper discipleship or a systematic understanding of the Bible. It was just buying books off the shelf, <laughs> whatever I liked to read. So I said to myself, well, you know, I just want to get a Bible uh, straight, uh, Christian theology just straight up in my mind. Um, yeah. And, you know, two years, that's it. I said to God, two years, you know, God, I don't want to have a fat brain <laughs> and uh, uh, be wrecked with that. So I, I started doing that. But, it was in my very first year in a seminary, uh, and I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, that's uh, Tad's in Deerfield, Illinois. 
that I met a professor by the name of Paul Hebert. So I took uh, Paul Hebert's class, which uh, turned my life upside down. It was introduction to a world missions class, which now many churches use as the perspectives, uh, perspectives uh, course. And, uh, you know, Michael, all I can say is that uh, every single week in that class was like drinking from uh, a waterfall. I thought I knew a lot about the Bible. Uh, I thought I knew a lot about theology, but it was essentially the questions from the mission field, the cross-cultural issues that complexified theology and uh, how theology really needed to interact with the real world, real people and real cultures in their context. Uh, that really made it all come alive for me, you know? Yeah. And so that was when uh, I said to myself, wow, systematic theology doesn't hold a candle to missiology at all. And that's <laughs> that's when I felt I... I found my true calling in life. Uh, I said to God, God, I want to study missiology and wherever this takes me, uh, this is where I'll go. We need the uh, systematic theologians to hear hear that. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) So that in a nutshell sums up the three M's. Um, But the the story didn't stop there because uh, again, you know, I said I only wanted to study for two years, but somehow the two years became uh, four years, uh, got provided the money. And I felt, well, you know, since I'm here, I might as well just uh, study a little bit of the biblical languages. Uh, So God graciously provided the funds for that to extend my study. And then the four years, uh, I I finished my Master's of Divinity in TEDS, uh, then became another additional year where I did my master's in theology uh, because I just wanted to take more missions classes and I, I just didn't have enough uh, electives uh, left over in my MDiv to do that. And then I thought, that was it. I, I'm done. Uh, I'm ready to go back to Malaysia. But no, because my wife wanted to study as well. I, I got married to my wife in 2000. She's also Malaysian. She wanted to study when I met her, she was studying at Dallas Theological Seminary, and she only did two years. Uh, I, I, I guess uh, she loved me too much. Uh, she she cut half of a four-year program and two-year <laughs> program to marry me. Uh, but no, I mean, um, uh, it just somehow worked out that way that uh, she joined me at TEDS after only doing two years of a study there and uh, once I finished my studies I felt I wanted to honor what she did and so I supported her as she studied her master's in theology Uh, and uh, then when she did that we were ready to uh, return to Malaysia again but again uh, you know we have our plans but God has better plans for us Um, uh, somehow doors didn't open uh, my church that moved on to a different place that's my Malaysian church. And I was in a different place spiritually. And where I was with my calling, I felt. And somehow we couldn't connect. And uh, I still had many questions left over from my master's in theology. 
So that went on for a couple of years until God said, you know, you should do a PhD. And I said to the Lord, no, Lord, I don't want to do this at all. Uh, <laughs> I am tired of studying. I, I've got uh, two children already. Uh, and besides, I don't have any money. But again, again, you know, uh, God has been very, very uh, faithful and God is good. And when God puts something in your heart, in your life, you know, God makes a way, Michael. And so, uh, so again, God provided the money and the funds and the time to do that. And uh, I, I did my PhD. Finally, in 2012, uh, after about uh, four or five years of doing that, uh, God opened the door for me to return to Malaysia to do this uh, work. I was in Malaysia for about seven, over seven years in the city. So that's the journey that a lot has uh, brought uh, me along all this while. Yeah. And you are now in Singapore? Yes. I'm now located in Singapore. Um, we moved here in 2019 after my family had trouble renewing our residency status to work and serve in Malaysia. Um, and yes, we've been here for about uh, two and a half years since. All right. Yeah. And what a two and a half years it's been um, clouded with COVID under um, various restrictions and such. Yeah, it's been quite a journey. <laughs> I love Paul Hebert, by the way, and um, just gained so much from his writings. Um, and even though he was not an urban missiologist per se, his writings on the city are just incredibly insightful. Mm. Um, he just had such a gifted ability to to see the world well and see the world through Christian lenses, mm -hmm. uh, theological lenses. Mm -hmm. You've lived in multiple cities in the U.S. and Asia, um, including some global cities and some medium-sized cities. One of the things that, you know, I, it's on my heart is, you know, more people live in cities in Asia than all of the urban dwellers outside of Asia. In other words, the cities of Asia are significant for the future and to understand cities of Asia. But it's been a little frustrating. Most of what gets written about cities, both in mainstream circles as well as Christian circles, is typically with a Western look or face on it. I would love to hear your thoughts on Asian cities, Asian urbanism. What's unique what would you want to say about cities in Asia that maybe help us understand cities differently um, or might be contrasted with a Western city? How much time do we have? Uh, three hours? <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, uh, I suppose I, I can only speak from a personal experience. Um, when I grew up uh, in the 1970s, uh, Kuala Lumpur was a really exciting uh, up-and-coming city. It was rapidly urbanizing in the 1970s. And I still remember when I grew up at that time in Pataling Jaya, it was one of the newest uh, suburbs of uh, Kuala Lumpur. 
And I suppose as an Asian, the, the city was exciting because uh, the city was where uh, you could go to see movies. The city was where you could find uh, fast food. The city was a place of uh, freedom where you could explore. <laughs> and uh, the, the city was just full of tall buildings that you had never seen in your life. Uh, fountains and uh, parks and uh, these kinds of amenities that uh, you wouldn't get uh, in a village or uh, even in uh, outskirts or even uh, squatter settlements. Yeah. And so when uh, cities began to uh, develop and urbanize, um, I suppose as an Asian, many of us find going to the cities very uh, exciting. Uh, it's a sort of a new form of uh, life, a new form of vitality, because you went to this place where there's just uh, thousands of strangers and it's just exciting to be among the crowds because uh, you sort of felt a, a vibe or the energy. There were just so many restaurants, you know, in, in a one street alone, you, you could have a 20 or 30 different food choices. You know, Kuala Lumpur is just full of food choices. Uh, and then you had the shopping mall, you know, and uh, these are things that uh, you just don't have in a village. So these things are very, very exciting. And I, I think even today, Many Asians still feel and enjoy this vibe. But then there's the, I think, most important thing about cities, which is jobs. They are the place that offers the most uh, opportunities for people to find employment. Uh, if Even if you didn't go to school or complete uh, your education, uh, you could even uh, find job as a, a helper, uh, for example, driving uh, lorries, you know, or trucks, uh, or or even to uh, move things uh, around and so forth. So there are all kinds of jobs, all kinds of opportunities for the lower class and the middle class and, and so forth. So the, the cities really was a place that just uh, had so many things going on, you know, Michael. And I need to say this, otherwise I would be very, very remiss. Uh, the, the cities had malls which had air-conditioned facilities. Yeah. <laughs> I still remember going to a mall for the first time and it was cold and it was great. Uh, you know, because, uh, you know, everywhere in Asia is just hot and uh, we couldn't, I mean, none of us had owned any homes that had air conditions. They were just a luxury item. And so we loved to just go and hang out in a mall just to be to feel cool, you know. Uh, so you had those things. And I think even to this day, uh, many Asians uh, find many parts of the city, in a sense, very attractive. Yeah. I would say, you know, still today, it's a clear marker of an Asian city is large malls everywhere you look. Whereas in the West, malls have had their day, more or less. There are still a few lingering around, but malls played a different role in society. In terms of just urban life, you know, whereas in some Western cities, public space has been prized in a different way, whereas mm -hmm. public space has not had quite the same spotlight in Asian cities, but mm -hmm. private space like malls, mm. which are publicly accessible, have had a very prominent space. Mm. The other thing I was thinking while you were talking, you know, you talked about going to the city and, you know, you didn't really fear the city. 
Whereas in, I, I think sometimes in the West, there is this anti-urbanism that kind of trickles down into life. Um, we had we had just scrolled through a really old episode of Little House on the Prairie, and they're in the city and they're talking about how terrible the city is and it's affecting their family. It was that kind of thinking that affected people in the West, whereas I think the Asian experience of the city is this is there's a newness, there's opportunity, there's, you know, employment opportunity and freedom, like you said, with movies and restaurants and choices and all of those opportunities that come with the city. It's interesting. Yeah, and, and there's a long history in terms of urban development, the history of the West and the history of how cities developed in Asia. But I, I would argue that the way that cities have played this uh, outsized role in uh, Asian consciousness and the love that Asians have for city is really tied in a lot with uh, the history of uh, colonialism and post-colonialism in the sense that people really want jobs. They, they want to, to have a livelihood to feed their family. And it's really in the cities where the jobs are had. So for better or for worse, uh, the cities have always loomed large in the Asian ima- imagination as a place of opportunity where they could free themselves from the caste or the tribal uh, divisions or silos that they were stuck in the village where social or peer pressure would hold them down into particular occupations that, you know, they would have to stay with the rest of their life. But once they uh, relocated themselves, uprooted themselves and went to the city, they were freed from these religious, uh, ethnic, tribal or caste pressures that ascribed their identity and their fate in life, you see. So I think uh, part of this is that being in the city allows Asians to really more fully able to explore themselves and to expand what they would like to see and do and earn. Yeah, that's that's helpful to think through. Let's pivot a little bit to think, well, as you, you've already done so a little bit, is let's talk through... Um, missiologically, how do we look at cities and maybe in particular the cities of Asia? How do you, what are some things that you think through in terms of the church engaging cities in Asia? And you hinted at in your early story that when you went back to Malaysia the, the first time and were working in a church context, that there were some lessons learned there in terms of how to engage well. I would love to unpack that a little bit. Sure. I think that churches in Asia have always had a strong presence in a city. Part of it, of course, relates to the history of missions. In the early 20th century, many Western missionary efforts were started on the, the coast so, for example, in China, you have churches that were planted along the, the coastal lines, Shanghai and Beijing, and then in Malaysia and Kuala Lumpur and then Singapore. And so when these uh, countries gained independence and nationals took over, they inherited the work of the missionaries in the cities and uh, basically built 
on their legacy and uh, at the city presence. So I, I think this still continues to play a very important influence today because the Christians have never left the city. And in, in fact, uh, they've expanded it now to the point where you have uh, large mega churches <laughs> uh, in the cities. And some of these large mega churches are almost like a Mimi <laughs> shopping malls by themselves, uh, which shows the influence of the urban architecture to a church architecture. Some literally are in malls or even own malls, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. I think that Christians uh, have adopted the sense that uh, cities are a good place to do ministry because people from the villages want to come to the cities. It's a place that's alive of opportunity and churches uh, in Malaysia have grown a lot by drawing young, mobile youths and upcoming urban professionals so urban churches in Southeast Asia have grown the largest by appealing to this particular segment uh, of the population in the uh, 1970s, 80s, and I would even argue until the 1990s. But now in the last uh, decade or two, I think churches have now seen that we have more migrants. For example, you had the Rohingya from uh, Myanmar, and uh, even in the 1970s, you had the, the Vietnamese boat people. So there's been a series of refugees. There's been a series of non-nationals that have now come into the mega cities of uh, Southeast Asia and Asia. And the, the churches have seen that this is a demographic that they need to hear the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and we need to care for them. So I'm, I'm glad to see that increasingly more number of uh, urban churches have seen a migrant ministry as part of the community that they need to reach out to as well. So I think in the urban churches are in Asia, we tend to find these two particular types of ministry now. You noted that churches attracted a lot of young professionals and students and young people, 70s, 80s, 90s. Does that now mean that the church is shifted it to become a middle-aged kind of church? Do they need to, to shift gears again to reach the, the the next generation of young people? Well, I think that uh, if as long as the church uh, continues to locate itself and minister in a city, there will always be an influx of people from the village and new groups of uh, students and young professionals that it can always reach out to and appeal. So I don't see this diminishing at all. What I do see is that when there is too much of focus on urban ministry in a city per se, work in the villages and in the outskirts tends to be neglected. I see this in Malaysia and also other parts of Southeast Asia. And the small towns are obviously where uh, the population is aging because the youngsters are, are leaving for the cities, right? The urban church struggles because it's in these villages and these small towns that people don't speak English. People uh, want to speak their heart language. City churches tend to hold their services 
in English. And the challenge is how do we help young uh, urban professionals and these students who are coming to our city churches and help remind them to have the, the care and the concern for the places in which they have also left behind. In other words, how do they see God using them to bless these places that have uh, grown them, that has nourished them, uh, and so that they can bring the gospel uh, back to their hometowns also. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, and, you know, uh, cities have, whether we recognize it or not, cities have this symbiotic relationship with the countryside around it. You have done some thinking, a lot of thinking, I would say, just regarding city space and the church and how the church thinks about space, uses space, Anything you want to, to throw into the, the conversation there? Sure. I, I think that cities are increasingly interconnected these days, more and more. Globalized cities in one country are very in, interconnected to cities of another country. We see this through hubs, the airports. You know, these are major nodes where people just by the thousands or even a million a day just fly in and out. And so cities are really interconnected places. So one thing that I would say is interconnectedness. In terms of when we do city ministry, how do we serve in a way that we are faithful to the local but yet also mindful of the global, which means the many urban professionals from countries around the world, such as in Africa, South Asia, or North Asia, where many of these migrants are coming to the larger mega cities of Southeast Asia. Uh, how does it uh, relate? And then we also have expats from America, from Europe that are also in Asia as well. So how do Asian city churches include these uh, non-nationals, but yet also still retain that strong sense of the local, local preaching, local theology, local way of really doing ministry that speaks to the heart of the nationals. And it's not just a Western, non-native expression of the faith that is uh, just coming in and overlaying the top. I think this is a very, very key con concern because uh, this sense of interconnectedness goes into issues of uh, contextualization. Uh, it goes into issues of independence, running of churches. It goes into issues of partnership, money, and missions. So I think this is very important. That's one. The second, I think, is that, again, related to interconnectedness, is because we have so much mobility now, even people from the, the suburbs are commuting to the cities in one mega city. There's a sense that people are just so busy these days. Uh, Asians are, in some cases, even busier than Westerners, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, I'm, I'm here in Singapore, for example, and the pace of life is just uh, relentless. <laughs> and it, it's ironic because uh, I feel that my life here in Singapore is busier than it was uh, in Chicago 
uh, or even in Kansas City where I lived uh, for 20 years. I think uh, a theology of uh, rest, what does rest mean? And then what does a presence mean in this mobility of going back and forth? How, how do we find time to befriend people? How do we find time to minister to people when people are just so busy and they don't have enough time to sit in a church or, or to be in a particular location? I think Charles Van Engen said a mission on the way, you know, as the title of uh, one of the books that he wrote. Uh, can we do a mission on the highways and the byways uh, as we travel with them and as we find rest with them in the midst of travel? How does that look? Uh, you know, for the 21st century, we really need to look deeper into this kind of uh, theology of being uprooted, of being very mobile and so forth. Uh, and then the third and last thing that I want to say is the issue of smart cities. I think this is something that's very critical that we will be confronting in the next five, 10 years or so. We are already seeing this in mega cities in China, in Taiwan, Japan, Singapore, and Kuala Lumpur is heading this way as well. And it will definitely spread to the rest of Asia because, again, this ties to the idea of uh, interconnectedness mobility and, and travel. As cities get larger and larger, people now increasingly rely on social media and uh, digital technologies to connect with one another and lessen the need to travel. When we spend more of our time in the di digital spaces and we become more enamored and drawn to the idea of smart cities, running our lives and making traffic more efficient, telling us where to find more easily shops and so forth. We run the risk of uh, reducing everything into a set of uh, digitalized spaces that are controlled by algorithms that push us into a particular predetermined program to search and look for opportunities, spaces, and people. Yeah. So I think this is something that we need to keep in mind. There are definite benefits and advantages in terms of searching, doing demographic studies of the cities and understanding how it works with this new paradigm of understanding the cities. But we must always remember that missions is really still ultimately about working with God and allowing the spirit to open up doors of opportunities, embodied real-life people walking in the streets and the neighborhoods. Digital technologies and smart cities will not replace that. So I think we need to keep these two things in mind in terms of where we are moving forward in Asian cities. Those are huge issues, ones that we can't even begin to unpack in a conversation. It's a really complex thing to, to really wrap our minds around. As we draw this conversation to an end, what are some places you would point people to for just understanding cities well? And then where can people access some of your thinking and writing? Well, one place that I found useful for understanding Asian cities is YouTube. It's called the Urban Knowledge Network Asia. 
That's U-K-N-A, Urban Knowledge Network Asia. So if you go to YouTube and uh, you subscribe to that, I found that to be an extremely rich source of webinars, talks, and insightful discussions by academics that sociologists of the city or anthropologists of the city and even urban planning, architecture, and design, they've really helped me tremendously in understanding the diversity, the dynamics, and the processes of how Asian cities have developed and are still developing. As far as uh, Christian uh, sources, I know, well, uh, I don't know if I can recommend anything better than what you are doing right now already, Michael. <laughs> uh, you, you uh, I think uh, you have uh, a, a website, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. Uh, I'll send your uh, promotion fee in the mail. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it's okay, so I can go to Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I thank you for what you're doing on this, Michael, because uh, we really uh, badly needed a, a place and a resource for just gathering uh, many missiological uh, and a good uh, critical uh, links and information on this. Uh, so uh, I think those uh, would be the two that I have in mind at present. As far as uh, my writing, because I've really been involved in a particular ministry that's been uh, sensitive, I've not really had a, a blog or uh, made myself too uh, visible. And urban uh, missions is among one of uh, the five or six uh, things that I do. <laughs> so I don't have uh, works that I fully focus on urban uh, missions per se, but uh, I do have a book that was published a couple of years ago on urban mission and urban transformation that one can order. I think it's called Urban Mission and Urban Transformation. And the other is I have a book that is coming out uh, next year to end that the Ragnum Press will uh, publish. Uh, it's a book on globalization and it's called uh, Emplacing globalization, uh, mission in context of people, processes, and places. And uh, there will be a substantial chapter on uh, urban missions. And also, uh, I will touch on aspects of the digital smart cities in there as well. So it's not an urban missions book per se, but uh, it is discussing uh, all these dynamics of globalization. And cities are a very big part of the structure of globalization and the process of globalization. Yeah, and globalization has been one of those, another one of those topics for you that you've invested a lot of time into thinking and, and researching. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, good. All right, excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much, John, for taking the time to, to share with us and just to uh, help us understand, I think, thinking through these huge issues that we're facing in in our very urban century, particularly in the Asian context. So I very much appreciate you taking the time today. It's my pleasure, Michael. All right. Thanks, John. All righty. Thanks once more to Dr. John Cheong for being our guest on this episode. If you have any input to give on this podcast, you can write us at missioncity at radiusglobal.org. Mission City is hosted by me, Michael Crane, and produced by Radius Global Cities Network and Scott Slusher. Today's episode was written by me and Scott Slusher. 
Thank you for listening. We would love it if you would share this with friends and take a moment to leave us a review on whatever podcatcher you use to listen. It will help Mission City be heard by others. Until next time, love your cities well.